Today's scripture is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were still dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good afternoon. It's good to see you. I should say good morning as well. Good morning to the folks online. Um, man, one year ago, I made the decision to move to Tucson. It was one year ago, right? And what a joy it has been. Um, we are in week number six of the series. I should introduce myself. My name is Marcus, and I'm one of the pastors here, if you are new. Uh, we are in week six of a series that we are calling, we've been calling the Countercultural Series. So if you're just joining us, it would be helpful if you went back to listen to the first week, second week, first week, Dave defined what it means as a Christian to live in a culture and live counterculturally. We talked about uh, identity and gender and sexual identity and sex. Then I talked about uh, vulnerability and generosity. And this week we are closing it out with salvation. Uh, I'm always quick to remind you that James chapter 3 verse 1 says to me and to others who aim to teach this word of God that we will be judged more strictly. I will be judged more strictly for what I'm going to do in the next 30 minutes. And God holds me accountable. So I spend the time in prayer with the Holy Spirit and in study, knowing that one day I will stand before the Lord um, and be held accountable. It is a great gift and an honor to preach the word of God. And I don't take that uh, very lightly. Um, so let's open up in a word of prayer. 
thank you, Lord, for our just openness to receive. Thank you for your word that is so sharp and so clear, Lord, that it changes lives. We are grateful to be where we are in the world, where we are in the country, where we are in the city. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. And I pray for receiving ears and hearts uh, this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. As Liz read the scriptures, I'm sure some of you had the idea, man, I have seen this. I have read this. I have experienced this. I've heard this preached a million times. This, I'm going to alienate probably half the people in here with this one. I try not to. This is like the bounce pass of Christianity, right? When you're learning sports, basketball, one of the first things they teach you, the fundamentals is to pass the ball to someone else, right? My coach used to say, before you master the no-look pass, you must master the look pass, right? So this passage is the look pass of Christianity. Um, it is kind of the basics of Christianity, we will go into a little bit more theology than we usually do, and I'm not apologizing for that. So we'll go from head to heart today instead of heart to head, if you're with me. We are in Ephesians chapter 2. Just hold a place there. I may ask one of you to read simultaneously today. So stay, like I said, it's dialogical, right? We go back and forth. So I might ask somebody to read. So be here. Don't be somewhere else. Don't be at dinner right now. Okay. A few years ago, a, work wa- a workmate of mine, we'll call her Adrian. Um, Adrian and I were good friends at work. She, uh, she grew up in the church. Both parents were active in the faith, but she walked away in her 20s. Matter of fact, I would say she ran away. She was a confident, not militant atheist living in the big city of Denver um, loves everything that we we love. She loved coffee. She loved bike rides. She loved the mountains. She loved recreation. And she was very generous with her time, her money, her resources. Uh, she was a great person. One day after listening to a Christian speaker talk, she said to me, here's what I have, what I don't like or I don't get about Christianity. The, the salvation piece, I don't understand. The language of someone being saved. Um, her, questions has, her, her questions has stuck with me for years. She said, saved from what? I don't really have a satisfactory answer. I didn't have a satisfactory answer for her then, right? I didn't have an answer that didn't include me going into Christianese, if you understand Saved from what? I don't need saving, she said. In fact, I find it offensive that I, you think, or Christians think, I need some kind of help. I need saving. I don't need to be saved from anything. How do you answer that? Someone's living a life, doing very well, generous, everything else is going, they're educated, they're working, breathing, healthy. What do they need saving for? Where are they being saved from? Like I said this evening, we'll go from head to heart. 
we will talk about the question that Adrian asked is our present condition, why we need saving, right? What God's role in the salvation is. And then we'll talk about kind of our present, our, our transformed reality. According to theologian Millard Erickson, who's one of my favorites, um, Salvation is the application of the work of Christ to human to the lives of humans. Salvation is the application of the work of Christ to the lives of humans. Somewhere in the last 60 years, perhaps in, in, in the generation of Billy Graham, Billy Graham was phenomenal, phenomenal preacher, phenomenal evangelist. If you listen to him now, you would want to give your life to the Lord all over again. Um, it became popular in that movement, in that era, to have individuals who were moved towards God to pray a prayer and accept Jesus as their savior. You're with me. This was great. People, when, when Billy Graham was done preaching, people would be streaming down the aisles. You can look at it on YouTube now. People would stream. A generation of Americans, a generation of people around the world came to know of Jesus Christ through Billy Graham. Those people had children. And the next generation were mostly raised in a church, but could not really tell you when or an exact date of when they came to the Lord. You follow me? Their parents knew the exact date. But the next generation and the generation after that, they grew up in homes. So they couldn't tell you. Some of you here are like when people start talking about, oh, I became saved this day. You're like, eh, I feel like I grew up as a Christian. What is it with this date? What the movement unintentionally created was some doubt in some believers as to whether they were actually saved. I say a prayer, right? I get saved and I go on living. Because now we have, we had, then we, we, we started to get to the point where we had two types of people. The people who would say the prayer and genuinely become saved, if you will, and start living that way. Or some people saw the loophole, quote unquote, what's a loophole, and said, I can say the prayer, and I'm going to keep on living the way I, the way I live. I, I say the prayer, right? I said the prayer. If that was what was required of me to be saved, I've done it, right? I said the prayer. The other group would say, one other group would say, I said the prayer, and I'm a Christian, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do afterwards. Am I just going to sit? And wait for heaven? I'm a Christian. Do I just sit down and wait for the day that I die and go to heaven? Is that it? I'm here to tell you this morning, there's a more robust way of living that decision out. Right? What was missing was a vision of the life post-salvation prayer. The life after the prayer, the teaching of Christian living, the, 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 the works that it takes, right? The decision, the decision that we make is what the Bible calls a justification, the point of justification, which leads into the process of what the Bible calls sanctification, which means as you're being renewed and being cleansed and being moved towards God, which and then this this justification and sanctification ends in a process called glorification. There are four views. Don't fall asleep on me now. Don't worry. There are four views that theologians say, hey, this is how the Christians see um, salvation. 
The first view is the series of points view, which means I have been saved, right? And I'm and I go. I call this the stoplight approach. I got saved at one stoplight. I move to the next one, and something else happens to me, and I get I get better at being a Christian. I go to the next stoplight, and something else happens, and eventually I'm going to work my way to this eternal city. The stoplight view. The second view is a series a series of discontinuous processes. I call this the Mario Brothers approach, where you jump from one log to the next in salvation, like you know, you know. Right. You you move to one. You, you become saved here and then something comes along. And says, OK, I need this. Then you move to the next one. Then you move to the next one. The third view is the overlapping processes approach. Right. You can't really tell where you move from one stage of sanctification to the next. Right. When you move from becoming when you move from being a young believer to a teenage believer to a mature believer. Right. You overlap. I call this the one room schoolhouse approach. Well, you don't know where you're moving from first grade to second grade to third grade. Anybody else were there? I was in a warm schoolhouse when I first started. I didn't know what grade I was in for a little while there. <laughs> the last view is a single continuous process view, which is kind of distinguishable components that you can see gradually that you're moving and you're actually moving towards something. Right. Some Christians will tell you that. We have been saved. Like I got justified. I have been saved. Another way to look at it. One, one will say we are being saved, right? We're working through it. As we go, we get, we get closer and closer to God. And the other will say we have, we shall be saved eventually. You see it, right? Justification and sanctification. People look at in three different views, uh, four different views. Here's the deal. All these views are focused on timing. The time aspect. It's a time approach of looking at salvation. You don't need to belong to any one of these views uh, in, in relation to, to salvation. You don't have to say, oh, I think this view is where I stand. You don't have to stand in any one of these. This passage that we're going to look at this morning, this, this, this evening, seeks not to understand the timing, but it answers the question of how and why we are saved. How the process of salvation actually works and why we need saving. If you look in the Bible, there are cases of all these four views that just explain different people in the Bible. Either sometimes they come to the Lord, it takes them a process to go. The Bible is not mostly concerned with the timing of salvation, but rather the how and the why. Right? I am not, if God were to, I am not concerned with my birthday as much as I am concerned with my purpose in life. You follow me? If I didn't know my birthday, I'd be okay. If I knew the, the, the purpose of my life, I would, be, I would be better. Does that make sense? Right? If I just lost you in the first six minutes, please, let me bring you back. Let's talk about our present condition. Why we actually need saving. Why we need saving. Paul in Ephesians 2 talks about our present condition. Back to Adrian's question when she said, why do I need to be saved? Saved from what? Why do I need to be saved? Verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We are out of harmony with God's will, if you will. We have, Bible describes sin or defines sin as having missed the mark. We are slipping away or falling away from God. We are made in God's image to live in his family, to be aware of his presence. God has given us a lot of freedom with the possibility of disobedience. But that disobedience leads both to physical and spiritual death. It leaves us with a lifeless eternity separated from our loving father. Following the course of this world, theologian John Scott, John Stott says, is a whole value system that is, we've created a whole value system that is alien to God. Our sin, both individual and collective, holds, 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 kind of, holds us in an outlook that denies the presence of God, denies absolutes, denies that there is truth and there are lies. It glorifies materialism. It gives birth to actually selfishness, greed, racial disharmony, and a list of other deeds of the flesh. Sin affects us not only individually, but also collectively. We had hoped that the absence of God, at least in the West, will present us and bring us to a utopia. In fact, it has brought us more of the opposite, right? If I ask you the question, do you think the world is getting better or worse? How would you answer that? Someone said, is, <laughs> thank you, Sammy. <laughs> Most people will say worse, right? A tiny minority will say it's better for some, right? The people who are making, who are doing well, who are making the money, or who are, who are living well and enjoying life. Our dissatisfaction with the current state of the world can be traced to our disobedience, our search for alternatives to God. We are not just dead. We are dead in our transgressions. We have fallen away from the truth and uprightness. We are poor in many, many ways. We are poor in truth, poor in grace, poor in kindness, poor in love, poor in forgiveness, poor in generosity. And we carry out the root with ruthless accuracy the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. If you can think of it, chances are we can create it. And most times it isn't great for other people. We are so steeped in it, sometimes we do not recognize it. Sometimes, most times, we actually overestimate our generosity, our goodness, and our ability to save ourselves. We are totally incapable and morally unable to escape the results of our disobedience. I always told people when I was a refugee in a refugee camp, my prayer life was actually stronger than it is now. You know why? Because I have other things to depend on. Right? Nowadays, I can get sick and I don't think of prayer first. I think of going to the hospital first. 
I tell you this story all the time. When I was 12 years old, on my 12th birthday, I had malaria and I had no way, I had no money. And I was sitting in the, in the couch and crying and tears coming to my eyes, going to my ears. I remember this. And I started to pray because I didn't know if I was going to make it. If I were to contract anything today, I make a phone call and they take care of me. And maybe on the way to the hospital or in the hospital bed, I might throw up a prayer or two. <laughs> Philosopher Cornelius Platinga says this, sin distorts our character. It corrupts powerful human capacity. It perverts special human excellencies and consequently both causes and re results from misery. In addition, sin operates in some way or, or another as a cruel, as a casual factor in the evil we experience through the accidents of large-scale human and natural catastrophes, which appear to be beyond our moral control. That sounds like a philosopher. What he's trying to say is the sin that we're steeped in has been manifested in the world we live in through different things. And we, we, it's like we're in this inescapable web to get out of it. And it seems like we can't. Any secular humanist right, or atheist will not deny that the world is not what we had hoped it would be. 50 years ago, when computers were not a thing, and we thought, or even 20 years ago, and we said, okay, these things are happening. Maybe life will get better. It's gotten better in some ways, right? Last week I said this, maybe it was two weeks I said this. I said when the internet first, when, when the internet first started coming, we thought, oh man, this is great, right? It's a shiny new thing that we're gonna we're gonna play with and it's gonna be it's gonna fix everything. Now it's like a forest we can't get out of. It's haunting us. We had hoped the earth, our country, would be better by now. We had hoped that we would be able to get rid of wars and poverty. Why can't we? Why can't we just make the world better? It's a difficult pill to swallow knowing that a lot of the suffering we see is because of some of the selfishness we have. In our attempt to become God, we actually become more godless. In our attempt to tell an alternative narrative to the story of God, we have become less human. Because we are human, Sin is deep within us, so we are in the systems that they're in the systems that we create and operate. We are sinners. God saves sinners. Unless you are completely convinced of what I just said about the human condition, this next part will not make sense. Right? You are a sinner. Our world is supposed to be, is, our world is not what it's supposed to be. If you can't grasp that, the next part that I'm going to talk about won't actually make sense. Can I grammar nerd on you for just a little bit right now? God saves sinners. Subject, verb, direct object. In English, the direct object does not have to do much in a sentence. That's where we are. Uh-oh, I hope I didn't get a glazed look. The subject of that sentence, God, is the one doing the action, which is saving the direct object, which is us sinners. If you're leaving here, if you're trying to get the, the wording, I need to do something to change the world, I need to do something, you are the sinner in that sentence. God saves sinners. Verse 4. That's our condition right now. 
This is where we are. This is where we have been. This is the human condition. Verse four, but God, oof, I've got to speed up. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trans in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you were to summarize Christianity in two words, if I were to ask you to summarize Christianity in two words, if you were on the street and someone asked you to summarize Christianity in two words, what would it be? Some cynical people might say uh, wishful thinking. Right. Or I don't know. Don't care. Some Christians might say do better. Um, But here it is. But God. But God. In the Greek, in in, in that sentence, I'm not going to throw shade on any translations out there. But there is, is a participial phrase that starts chapter, that starts verse four, and some, and, and some translations will say, but being rich, God, but being rich, the, 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 the way the sentence is constructed, I would argue in my little five classes of Greek that I had in the seminary, I would argue it should be translated, but God being rich. Not a big point, but God. God is rich. We are poor in all of these things, and God is rich. But God is saying, all these things are true about you on one hand, but on the other hand, God. All these things are true about us as a society, as a people, but on the other hand, God. We are depraved, we are lacking, we are poor, but our Father in heaven who created us has a great purpose, and he is rich. We are clueless, but God. We are hopeless, but God. We are dead in our transgressions, but God. We are dead in our sins, but God. We have no hope, but God. We have no chance, but God. God is rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy. Let me let me go through with mercy real quick. Mercy is how rich God is. God is rich. If you break down mercy, it comes out to God is rich in forgiveness. He is rich in restoration. He is rich in reconciliation. He is rich in love. He is rich in immeasurable ways. Compassion International, which is one of my favorite organizations in this country. I'm not sure what's going on now, but they have a great definition of mercy. Mercy is the compassionate treatment of those in distress, especially when it's within one's power to punish or harm. God has that. The word mercy derived from the medieval Latin term merced, which means the price has been paid. It has a connotation of forgiveness, benevolence, and kindness. Mercy is often used as a, in a religious context of giving alms, which means giving to give gifts and not expecting anything in return. Mercy is caring for the sick and the poor. God is compassionate in forgiveness. He is compassionate in benevolence. He is passionate in kindness and he cares. He is rich in mercy. How do I know that God is rich in mercy? Look at the story of the prodigal son. Luke 15, right? Here's a man or a boy, two brothers. 
one of them gets up one day and says, I want my inheritance now. In Hebrew culture, when you told your dad you want your inheritance now, you're basically telling your father, I wish you were dead so I can get it now. And he leaves his home, right? He leaves, he goes out into the world. What he finds in the world is something that we all know. It's not as easy as it looks. He's confined, right? He's a, he ends up working in a pigsty. You know what happens to him? He comes back home. He comes back. And God in Luke 15 says, his father felt compassion for him and drew him closer. That's how God sees us. He sees us. He takes us who were dead in our transgressions and sins and makes us into something. God loves us. He doesn't leave us in our sin. He pulls us who are, he pulls us who are dead and brings us alive. We are his masterpiece. If you haven't heard it this week, I want you to hear from me. God loves you and you are his masterpiece. Tomorrow morning, when you look yourself in the mirror, I want you to tell yourself this. I'm God's masterpiece. I'm not going to ask you to tell your neighbor that today was, you know, we trying, we trying, right? We trying. You are God's masterpiece. You are his workmanship. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. So how does God do it? How does he actually save us? You understand why we need saving is because we cannot save ourselves. We can't even save the world that we try to create. We try. We cannot do it. That's why we need saving. God transforms dead people and brings them alive. It's how he does it. He did it, past tense. He does it, and he present tense. And he continues and will do it in the future. And he does it the same way. The formula is always the same. Through Jesus. I'm not speaking here of the baby Jesus. I'm not speaking here of the miracle performing Jesus, not just the teacher Jesus, but the all-encompassing resurrected Jesus. Here's what it cost to save you. It cost him his only son. It cost God his only son. The, the single most important life, the single most important person to ever walk the face of the earth died because of you. Your salvation was not and is not cheap. Your salvation was planned long before you were born. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says this, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. faith. It is not by your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man can boast. Let me ask you this. Suppose God was talking, was taking, I said, was taking people into heaven based on their merit. Based on what you did on earth, that's how God's going to take you. When you get to the gates, God will ask you, what did, what did you do? What did you do to earn your salvation? What could you possibly tell him? If your heavenly place depends solely on your performance on earth, what would you tell God? Would you be able to boast? I got here because I did X, Y, and Z. I got here because I, you know, I was a pastor. I got here because I was a campus ministry leader, right? I got here because I gave to the homeless. 
I got here because I hosted an RC in my home. I got here because I gave more money to the church. I got here because I didn't do X, Y, or Z. I want you to imagine what the church would look like if we were earning our salvation. What this room would feel like if you had to do things to earn your salvation. If it was a meritocracy, what would it be like? If you think there's infighting in the church now, if the word got out that God was only taking people based on their grades in church, what would it be? There'd be some elbowing to get to the front of the line to get to heaven. <laughs> You'd be punching people in the face, hey, I'm trying to get to heaven, watch out. Pride would be through the roof. Folks, Jesus' death is why we are saved. Jesus' sacrifice would have been in vain if we had to earn our salvation. Verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is where I'm going to end. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Here's what I wish I would have told Adrian when she asked me the question. Saved from what? Why do I need to be saved? See, we aren't merely saved from something. We are saved to something. We are saved for something. See, she was hung up on the narrative that if I get saved from hell, that is it. Well, I don't think I'm going to hell. Right? And I, I, I can sit and wait and nothing will change in my life. We live in a world that is desperate for the people of God to act like the people of God. Maybe y'all missed that. We're not sitting on our hands waiting for death when God has already brought us out of death. Oh man, you, you man, y'all tripping. Y'all missed it. <laughs> the Adrians of the world have the wrong narrative and it seems like we're the one perpetuating that narrative. That's the wrong story. We aren't merely saved, like I said, from something. We are saved to something, right? Her life was great, great as much as I could tell, right? She was living. What she didn't see was personal or systemic sin or the need for a savior. First John 8, I mean, First John 1, 8 to 10 says this. Let me read this. This is what I wish I would have said without Christian language. John says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So basically, if you deny the fact that you're a direct object in the sentence, you're deceived. Yes, we are saved from a Christless eternity, but that's half the story. The narrative is incomplete. What was left out in the last 70 years is that when you come up and say the prayer, you don't just go back and sit down. Billy Graham himself admitted and said the people needed discipleship into how to live out as Christians. Right? Not that you got the clear to go up to heaven, so now you can relax. Verse 10, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works. When we are saved, we're not saved to sit. We're saved to good works. Because we have been designed by God for good works. God has something for us to do here. Right? We're not waiting for death. Throughout the Bible, throughout history, when someone becomes keenly aware of their human condition and comes to accept God and and gets the gift of salvation, they don't just sit down, look at the woman at the well. She meets Jesus in the noonday. You know what the Bible says? She says she goes on and she starts telling everybody, come see the man. William Wilberforce becomes keenly aware of his of his sin, his personal sin, and then he also he also sees societal sin and he works his heart out to end the transatlantic slave trade. He's not sitting on his hand waiting to die to go to heaven. And neither should you. Your understanding of the human condition, your condition, your standing with God, when you understand how 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 sinful you are and how you are redeemed and what it costs to get you redeemed, and the generous the generosity of God towards you, you are moved. You are now been enriched. Now you see your sin and you see the evil in the world, and you must move. We develop a relation with God that draws us into a new kind of living. That's the Christian life. You ought to become appreciative of even being alive. You're like a person on a mission. My favorite, Amer- one of my, not my favorite, one of my favorite American phrases, idiomatic expressions, is when you see someone running around somewhere or someone driving out of control, you say, man, that dude is driving like a bat out of hell. Let me tell you something. If a bat comes out of hell, his key thing is not being in a hurry. His key thing is the appreciation that he's out of there. He's grateful. So when you when you hear that phrase, next time I want you to think, man, he's not driving like a bat out of hell. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna live like a bat who is grateful, right? I'm grateful to be out of there. I'm not even in a hurry. I'm grateful to be living. If you understand that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, it changes your outlook in life. We have been awakened from death to life. Share this and then I'll close. It was, I don't know, the end of October 1990. Most of you probably weren't born. I was, I don't know how old I was, 10 or 11. And I'm sitting there one, one, one Saturday afternoon. Maybe it was Saturday. I couldn't tell the days because we were in a war. And we're playing cards four o'clock in the afternoon, waiting for you know, the meal because we had one meal a day. So we'd eat the meal right around four or five in the afternoon. So I just stressed to the next day. But that's another story. So we're, we were waiting for the meal. We're playing cards. School's not in session. War's going on. And it just got quiet all of a sudden where we were staying in the house. We we're outside on the front porch. And next thing you know, there are soldiers jumping over the fence and coming to the house and coming closer to the house. And I recognize the soldiers as the soldiers that were not friendly to people like me who wanted to take lives like mine. And they started approaching the house from different corners. You know how soldiers are when they're in battle. They're very different. It's like like they're not even human. And they asked everybody to come out. I'm talking bullets and grenades hanging all over them. And we all came out and I thought, this is the day. This is the day that I'm going to die. And I'm standing there. We're in line and they're asking. Usually they start asking people, what tribe are you? So they can start ending lives. 
And he's going down the line asking, what tribe are you? And I remember as, as an 11-year-old, I was sitting there looking at the crack, and I saw some ants on the ground. I said, man, I wish I was an ant right now. When he skipped over me to go to the next person to ask them what tribe they were or what the name was, you don't understand. The bat out of hell does not quite cut it. You understand? The appreciation that I had, like I, I told myself from that day on, I was going to live differently because I had just missed death. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. God has pulled you from that situation. You will not die. So you ought to live differently. Right? You ought to live as if like you, you have been saved. That's what, that's what Adrian was missing. She didn't see the fact that she was in danger. You're so steeped and deceived. Sometimes you can't even see that death is upon your door. Not just physical death, but eternal death. You have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Act like it. Right? Act like it. Let us pray. God, we are so grateful to having been the subject, having been the direct object in receiving your, 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 your salvation. We are saved not from merely from something. We are saved to and for something. Lord, I pray that that word is cemented in just one heart this evening. We love you, Lord. You loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.